This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. My name is Brian Kodik. My name is Joel Dahlquist. <laughs> and we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% theory of substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world. And 1% break. Guys, we were on a break. <laughs> a mini break. We, yeah. A mini break. We took a break. We took a break <laughs> for multiple reasons. Yes. Well, the world's getting back. To, well, not, I, I don't want to say the world's getting back to normal, but our, oh, post, no, no. our post-COVID regime is resuming. Yeah. Where in the world are you, Brian? I'm in London, so not, <laughs> not that exciting. <laughs> what about you, Joel? <laughs> Uh, same here. I've done a bunch of hearings from my bedroom, so I, I don't know what you're talking about with COVID over, etc. Where in the world are you, Sadia? I'm in Paris. I don't know what you guys are talking Ooh, about. La, la, there right. we go. Now we got it. <laughs> Things are happening here. It's Paris Arbitration Week, and yes, we definitely feel like things are backish to normal, if there is such a thing. Um Although there is also a spike of COVID cases here in, in France at the same time. So oh, really? Know, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that applies to the UK too, Ryan, and basically everywhere else in the Western world. Right? Yeah, really? my partner, not, not to I mention guess. China and Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess. Uh, so we took a break because of all these reasons. And also because there's, uh, in other parts of the world, there's a war going on. Uh, so, and we're going to speak a little bit a little bit about the implications of that, right, guys? Mm-hmm. A little bit, yes. It's something we had planned to talk about anyway. Council withdrawing from cases and whether and how you can do that, which has now become a live issue in our small world of arbitration as a consequence of things happening in the bigger world outside of arbitration. And the war has now started to spill over into other kinds of disputes as well. Uh, but I do think it was... Good, at least for my own peace of mind that we took a little break i also happen to have a lot of work going on but the war has been really draining i am not personally affected in any way beyond the people that i know who are but it's still so uh, constantly top of mind in a way mm-hmm. that makes it hard to do anything else kind of like covid was in that sense in the beginning mm-hmm. as well you know the first few months when it supposedly we, sh- we could all work from home and things supposed to be easy but in practice it's just mentally draining and you're constantly Mm -hmm. in a different place than work mentally yes and while we're on that um, i know everyone has been reaching out to their networks about finding ways to help uh, in the limited ways that we can um, from abroad and a lot of people have been donating to humanitarian aid and 
think Maria Kostiska, Winston and Strawn, who's Ukrainian partner in France, uh, posted on her LinkedIn that you can donate to the Red Cross. Um, I reached out or Kemp reached out to um, Integritas, which is a firm in uh, Ukraine. And I said, is there anything that people can do? And I got a response saying that all of us at Integritas are doing what we can to support Ukrainian citizens during these unprecedentedly difficult times. Unfortunately, there is a humanitarian catastrophe in numerous cities, and one of their priorities is to procure various types of medicines and goods which Ukrainian people desperately need. And because of the difficulty in people trying to figure out how to funnel aid and support um, as direct and as possible, um, Integritas is, um, has set up a kind of a German holding company that is going to accept donations that they will pay uh, into these humanitarian aid funds directly. So if you wish to find a way to support, email us or uh, tweet at us and we can give you that information directly. They also wanted us to be aware that there are a, a lot of pharmaceutical companies who might be able to donate uh, certain vital medicines and equipment, um, and that's coordinated and prepared by the Ministry of Health Care of Ukraine. So um, I can also, or we can also at the podcast, give you some information on that as well, if you are looking for a way to help. Yes, perfect. And also, if I just may add, for those of you who are at Paris Arbitration Week, who have been, if you go on the website, the first thing that pops up is donation to the Red Cross as well. That, um, I was going to ask if what's what's the tone, or maybe it hasn't even started yet. But are is there are there going to be some conferences on the implications of the war in international arbitration, or is there any any other things you can tell us since you are boots on the ground? <laughs> well, it's just starting today, so okay. I, I haven't yet uh, been to any event, so I can tell you more about it when at our next maybe uh, next recording. Uh, but I imagine, yes, there are a couple of sessions, at least on sanctions, um, mm-hmm. that are on there, but I don't have the program under my eyes right now. But um, Jeet is hosting a, a couple of conferences. Yeah, Jeet is hosting two conferences, not on that topic. One is on EU state aid and arbitration. So we're doing this one with Ifila and uh, ASEC. Um, and the other one is on Africa and specifically on... Um, disputes arising in Africa uh, in the extractive market. So so mining disputes and so on and so forth with an environmental human rights component to it. So one in English, one in Francais. (laughs) Very good. That that actually reminds me, I went to a a, a different kind of conference recently. Um, It was basically the Republic of Congo, not the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, Congo-Brazzaville. Yes. Mm. Uh, and they, it was, it was so interesting because it was basically the road show that they do to attract foreign investment. So we're always oh, right. at a different stage of the process, but this is the first time where they're showing how many minerals are in the ground and what types of minerals are in the ground and looking for foreign investment. And I thought that was, and so basically everyone in the audience was just potential investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously they're getting a lot of investment uh, inquiries from China and I think they're trying to diversify that. So they did a bit of a roadshow and it was really, really interesting to see that initial stage uh, before it all. Yeah, I- I've seen that a lot, but never live always, as you say, within the frames of a dispute when you're looking mm-hmm. back to see like 
what was the kind of promises made? What was the expectation that the investor may have had? And then there are a mm-hmm. lot of you have to go through these presentations, but actually seeing it in real time, it's a different experience. Yeah. It's actually super interesting for us lawyers to go to these conferences because there are not a lot of lawyers that go to these events. No. And uh, and that's the thing, is like you start talking to them about disputes are like, what? It's like they're at a you know, marriage kind of, you know, uh, seminar and you're talking about divorce and they're like, what are you talking about? Let me dream. <laughs> but it's really interesting the people you meet there. And so that's good. It was, it was this one in London, Brian. Yeah. 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 Yes. 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 It's okay. Yeah. Um, and then to make sure that we're balancing the, um, economic impact in this, in this podcast, we will be interviewing or we won't be interviewing. We will be introducing our guest correspondent, uh, Leonor Díaz Córdoba, who is at CT Group here in London, and she was a former guest of ours in the cognitive diversity segment, where she presented her article that she co-authored with two other authors. Um, and she will be our guest correspondent, hopefully not this not the only time, but in the future. And she recently co-authored an article with Lucy Greenwood, who everyone knows is an inter- independent international arbitrator specializing in the energy sector. Um, and she and we discuss with them not only the Green Pledge, which is what Lucy Greenwood is famously known for, but kind of how this has now turned from a pledge into a full campaign. There are um, regional groups and subgroups that are all working on the campaign. And I, th- in order to take it away from our previous episode on the Green Pledge, we talk about some real world tactical issues that or or tools that parties, arbitrators, and council can use to make arbitrations more efficient and greener. So that's that's the, the environmental balance we're bringing to today's episode. And then by popular demand, we're doing a segment which we haven't researched because that's some, some shared feedback all of us have gotten from different people that the few segments we've done recently when we haven't you know, been sticking to our prepared, one of us is introducing something to the other two. People seem to enjoy the like spontaneous reactions to things the way we used to do before we turned pros. <laughs> so let's let's try again and do something like that when we talk about the council withdrawal. And I, it's more comfortable for me because I don't work as council, so I can expect some heavy lifting in the guessing department. There we go from the, from those of you who do. And then finally, we'll round off the episode with our happy fun time topic, which is pay to play. Um, not this is not dealing with costs in international arbitration, but more so about what we as international arbitration practitioners face when we are trying to compete or contribute for awards and articles and publications and conferences. Um, and me coming from a newly formed uh, startup firm, I have some views on this pay to play uh, setup that we have in, in these types of fields. And spoiler alert, but as a former and sometimes aspiring academic, I also have feelings on this topic. (laughs) I also have very strong feelings about this topic, which I will voice (laughs) accordingly. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Let's uh, start off with Leo or Leonor and uh, Lucy Greenwood. I'm going to speak with uh, Lucy, Lucy Greenwood, uh, today. She's a key figure in the international disputes field 
and her main area of expertise is the energy sector in all its forms, but her strengths go well beyond that. As anybody who's come across her knows, she is bright, thorough, very responsive, and a refreshingly straight shooter. Um, and one of her most visible projects of recent times is the campaign for greener arbitrations, which she launched in 2019. And so, Lucy, I would very much like to talk about the work of the, um, of the campaign uh, going forward, but maybe if, if you could just give us a brief intro on the campaign and how it's evolved since, uh, it, since you launched it. Thank you, and I'm really delighted to be with you here today. Um, it's great. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. I, I pick up on you saying that the campaign was launched back in 2019. Uh, that's a very grand term for, for what it started out as, which was a, a very small um, thought, I guess, captured on my uh, website in my blog, where I simply talked a little bit about whether it was possible to have what I termed a zero impact arbitration. And at the end of that, I said, you, I'm going to pledge to run my arbitrations in a greener way and encourage those appearing before me to do so as well. And really, that's all it was. And I set out some sort of guiding principles and said to call it the green pledge, if you will. Anyway, it, I was astonished at how this notion of a green pledge really caught the attention of kind of the wider arbitration community. And it was it was so inspiring to see people embrace and adopt the principles that I'd set out in that in that very short post. But I have to say quite quickly thereafter, I began, I realized that a green pledge really wasn't enough. I, I had been originally very quite involved in the equal representation and arbitration pledge, which addressed diversity and particularly the underrepresentation of women in arbitration. And so that's really where I was getting this drive to have the notion of a pledge. But it they are it is a very difficult, different animal. And I decided that whilst I, I wanted to promote the pledge, and I have to say I'm absolutely thrilled that last week we hit our thousand signatory to the Green Pledge. Congratulations. Wildly exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I felt like it was, you know, as somebody walks through the millionth customer through a supermarket, we should have something to take away or something. Um, but we are featuring uh, the, 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 the person who, who is the thousandth signatory uh, in our forthcoming um, newsletter. Anyway, I digress slightly. Um, I, I, I knew that a pledge wasn't enough because what we need here is action. And our overriding slogan is always actions, not words. That we are in a climate emergency and we have to change our behaviours. So that was the impetus behind um, forming this campaign, a campaign for greener arbitrations to really change people's behaviour. And that's what we've been focused on uh, essentially for the last sort of two and a half years. And since then, you've developed these six green protocols, which are available in at least five languages, right? And, uh, and you've also inspired um, other similar pledges in other fields, such as litigation and mediation. Yes. I, I mean, I think the green protocols are really our crowning achievements so far. And, and personally, I can take very little credit for them. When I, when I conceived of, of the broader campaign, I brought together an, 
a truly amazing group of, of people to form the initial um, Global Steering Committee. And they, they created the working group that took the idea that I had of these green protocols and just ran with it to create these incredibly detailed sort of how-to guides, how to run your arbitration in a greener way if you are an arbitrator, how to do it differently if you're counsel. What can the arbitration institutions do? What about conference providers? I mean, what we did essentially was take all the elements of an arbitration and look at the individual actors and say, okay, what can you do? And then people would say to us, well, we don't know. And we would say, well, go and look at the green protocol for um, for law firms. Go and look at the green protocol for arbitration institutions. It will help you. They are deliberately, I would say, very prescriptive. And we undenied about that because uh, people get it, say, oh, they're very detailed. And, and, you know, how can we comply with all of uh, the protocols? And I always say to them, you don't have to. You can pick and choose the parts of the protocol. But what we wanted to give you is a very comprehensive sort of roadmap of this, these are the areas that will really make a difference if you make these changes in your practice. And as you say, Leonor, they've been just been translated into a number of different languages. And again, we are hugely grateful to all the people who worked on that behind the scenes, because that's a huge um, commitment. Um, and I'm very conscious that everyone involved has, has given up their time um, completely voluntarily. And as a result, we have these, these wonderful um, protocols out there. And you're saying that this campaign is very much about action. And obviously the protocols show that if they're how-to guides of uh, just detailing um, how to, uh, we can all work towards that zero impact arbitration rather than just having it as a goal in our minds that we're not actually um, taking practical steps towards. And one of the things you and I have looked into recently is how to use principles of behavioral science and behavioral economics to, um, to help with the campaign's goal to reduce the carbon footprint of, of arbitration through uh, changes in behavior. So I thought maybe we could discuss uh, that uh, in a little bit more detail now. So how um, one of the things uh, you raised with me is, is a fear that people will fall back to the pre-pandemic ways and that there might be, um, that there was so much ground gained when we all had to go virtual and had to limit our travel and, and all of that and to make sure that everything that was won isn't lost by just falling back to the old ways. Um, maybe you'd like to discuss a bit how uh, nudging and that concept that you and I explored in behavioral economics could help with that. Yes, uh, it is a very interesting concept that you mentioned, this, this whole idea that you can nudge people into changes rather than um, force them into it. And that's certainly the approach we've taken from in, in the campaign to date. And I would say with, with a significant amount of success. And the, the difficulties that you have when you're thinking about nudging people is that you need to make it easy for people and that's frankly going back to what I've said about the green protocols this is mm -hmm. this is they are intended to stop people coming to me and say oh Lucy I'd, I'd love to make changes but I just don't know what to do well we've dealt with that you pull out the green protocol and it will tell you what to do 
the other thing is to try, and we're, we're thinking about this at the moment, is to try and make it a, a default option. And that is more challenging in, in the arbitration process because it's a consensual process. But I think there are areas that we're, we're certainly exploring at the moment with regards to, uh, for example, the, the model green procedural order that we have um, drafted and is available um, on our website as part of the suite of green protocols. So can we somehow encourage arbitration institutions to be making sure that their arbitrators have a copy of the model green protocol um, for, for procedural order number one. Again, you don't have to adopt it in its entirety, but you can pull in parts of the protocol. And that's really to address the issue that I am starting to hear about, which is people saying to me, you're on the eve of hearings, we are struggling with parties now, again, as we come out of the pandemic, wanting hard copy bundles for example we're struggling with parties flying people in when we say it's unnecessary and you know that the costs go into a big pot and they're divvied up at the end so although you can say well it was one party's decision to fly in six witnesses unnecessarily in fact it does have an impact um, on the ultimate um, assessment of costs at the end of the case so uh, to the extent you can inculcate what I would see as good behaviour at an early stage, that I think is important. And that's something we're very aware that we need to be pushing more. I see a common denominator in some of these in behavioural economics aspects Mm. that you're bringing up, which is that it all kind of falls on the arbitrator in one sense or another. If you have PL1 and then you're dealing with assessment of costs, and also the party's reaction to the expectations of the arbitrator mm-hmm. and how they wish to handle the hearing. Um, and you're, you're obviously you're an experienced arbitrator. Do you think that there is kind of a, a leader leadership role that arbitrators need to take? Uh, we are cognizant that everyone needs to play their part, but do you see that some of this will fall on the arbitrator's shoulders, at least in the initial stages? I do, I'm afraid, Brian. And it, it's interesting, I was talking to... Um, a colleague yesterday about about leadership roles um, played by arbitrators and 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 we were talking very much about the lack of training provided to arbitrators in relation to leadership uh, and and principally we were comparing it with the amount of training that judges certainly in England now now get in terms of developing leadership skills and also developing soft skills. Arbitrators don't get any of that and. Often we can hide behind, oh, it's a consensual process. It's really the party's procedure. You know, we are the servant of the master, uh, servant of the parties rather than the master of the procedure. I actually think that's not good enough. I think as arbitrators, we do need to step up, and we do need. Obviously, you're going to, you're not going to impose uh, things on the parties where it is not appropriate to do so. But I think there does have to be an. Uh, a certain amount of leading from the front. And I go back to my point about the fact that we are in a climate emergency. And much of the messaging from the campaign and from is that this is a question of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that we, I think, have been slow as an arbitration community to recognise that we all have a personal obligation to act to reduce the carbon footprint of our practice. And there's been too much 
um, sitting back and saying, oh, well, I work for a big law firm. It's up to them to address the carbon footprint of the law firm or, well, I, I'm only an arbitrator. Therefore, what can I do if the parties decide, you know, they want to run it, in, run the arbitration in a very extravagant way? So I, I, I do completely agree with you, Brian. It is about leadership. And actually, the campaign's research has shown that um, a greener arbitration is a more cost-efficient one, right? So that should help arbitrators when they they are taking this leading role and saying, um, let's try to reduce the, the impact of this arbitration. Um, it'll actually have an implication on the cost the parties have to bear. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I did very early on back in 2019 with the great help of a team from Deckard actually was to uh, analyze in depth um, essentially a case study of an arbitration modeled on a large arbitration that the Deckard team had been involved in um, fairly recently. I knew I was dealing with cynical lawyers and if I didn't have sort of hard data to, to back up what I was saying, then, then there was almost no point having the conversation. So Deckert did this analysis into um, the carbon footprint of their case study, their quotes model arbitration. It was a very large arbitration. Um, that's there's no doubt about that. It was about between 30 and 50 million dollars in dispute, but not dissimilar from the caseload of, of a lot of the major firms involved in this area. That very detailed analysis produced our headline figure that you have, I'm sure, heard, which is that uh, it, it takes 20,000 trees to offset the carbon emissions of that one um, international arbitration. The more important point, I think, uh, for our discussion is that we then reran the numbers on what we call the green basis. And bear in mind, this was pre-pandemic. So it seemed radical at the time, um, but we uh, we changed the assumptions so that there was one less flight at every stage of, of the arbitration, um, that a number of wit witnesses were taken by video. We took out all the hard copy um, bundles and replaced them with uh, electronic bundles, but we did um, make provision in the assumptions for an electronic hearing platform, which obviously has its own carbon footprint plus its own financial cost. We reran the numbers. Uh, the saving in terms of carbon was around 50 tons of carbon. More interestingly, and to your point, uh, the saving in terms of costs was 40% savings on disbursement costs. And we weren't able to uh, properly track the hypothetical saving that would have been made on lawyers' fees. And I actually think that's quite a, it would be quite a significant saving in costs on lawyers' fees as well. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the, the research looks at things like the impact of long haul flights and hard copies, but also using not using disposable cups, which I found interesting. I mean, it's yeah. obviously very thorough research, like you've looked at almost like every aspect of, yeah. of uh, the running of a case and a hearing that can be that can have an impact in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where you know people say all oh, the protocols are too detailed because they do go down into things like disposable cups and tea bags and and wrap sweets and things. Um, but in a way, 
I like the stats about the disposable cups used in that in that case study because we we estimated that around three thousand disposable cups were were used, which rather reinforces my belief that arbitration practitioners drink an awful lot of coffee. <laughs> uh, but those uh, those three thousand cups, um, joking aside, that equates to about a ton of carbon equi- equivalent emissions. Uh, so significant if I tell you that your your personal um, carbon footprint of an individual in the UK is running at about 12, 12 tons um, at the moment. Yeah. I guess that's where institutions could then step in as a leadership role and not have that <laughs> offered as as part of their uh, venue fees or and and they, and they have uh, to to be fair th- these are the changing changes we are seeing and also as I come out of the pandemic a little bit and start to go back a little bit to in-person hearings. I am seeing fewer plastic bottles there. I am seeing uh, institutions using using jugs and things. And it, it's not about the individual plastic bottle. It's about the behavioural shift. And yeah. mm. it's about seeing things through a sort of sustainability lens uh, and being able to have a grown-up conversation about sustainability, ra- rather in the way that you know, we have we have improved the level of sophistication that we use when we're talking about diversity issues in arbitration we've moved from just just in inverted commas the underrepresentation of women to now having a i would say much more sophisticated discussion about the value of cognitive diversity um and and other sort of broader more more nuanced discussions about diversity we we need to move i would say more quickly um from just where we were back in 2019, which people say, oh, yes, I'm going to sign the Green Pledge, to actually, you know, we need to be, as a community, analysing at every stage of an arbitration, what are we doing? Are we are we acting essentially to avoid waste? I think we would all accept that we have been quite wasteful as a community in the past. And I, my, my personal view is, is we, we cannot continue in that way. It seems there's a direct correlation with technology and sustainability that um, everything from avoiding meetings in person to hearing bundles or hearing platforms that, that you just mentioned. I just finished a hearing where there, there was no printed bundles just by virtue of the party's own decision, but it worked fine. There was someone from the PCA that was able to project any document that you needed. It got a bit clumsy at times, but I think that with time will smooth itself out. Have you noticed that correlation as you've as you've progressed the protocols? Uh, absolutely. And I mean, part of the impetus for the original Green Pledge was the fact that the year before I'd done a, I'd chaired a two-week hearing um, in Houston and I, I'd encouraged everyone to have a um, electronic bundles, and that was all fine. But as a tribunal, we said, "Oh, we'll have a we'll have a copy of the hard copy bundles in the hearing room, quotes, just in case the technology fails." And uh, I mean, these it was a very big energy case, and you know there was a wall of printed bun- bundles behind me for the entire two week hearing, and they were never opened. And and really, when I looked at that and we all flew back to our separate places after the hearing and we all just said gaily to the council, oh, just shred those. I, th- I just thought that's not good enough. And there was, I think, this great fear that the technology might fail us. But nobody ever said, well, what if it does? And frankly, if it does fail, as you say, it's it's a couple of, it, you know, could be 10 minutes out of a two-week hearing that, that somebody's system freezes. Well, 
we can all cope with that. Um, And I think what what the pandemic has done is dragged us into this century, respectfully, um, in terms of technology. And we we it was always there. It was the technology was available back in 2018 when I had when I had this experience and in 2019 when I when I wrote about about the Green Pledge. Um, We just we just weren't using it. And now we have been forced to use it. And I feel very, very strongly that the minimum people can expect of their arbitrators is that we are efficient, productive and technologically competent. That's got to be the bare minimum. That is so interesting. Thank you. Um, I was thinking now that maybe uh, we could talk about how we can all help further the campaign's cause. I mean, you've already referred to what we can all do from uh, signing the pledge to adhering to the relevant protocols. Um, But is there anything, uh, can we get involved with the regional or other subcommittees the campaign has? How, How can we just all help further the cause? Well, there's lots people can can do. And uh, I've been absolutely thrilled with with the level of support that we've received so far. Much of what we do is about is about um, raising awareness, because I go back to my point, which is that we all knew what we we should be doing. And, And frankly, a lot of people were doing it in their personal lives. But we we were kind of abdicating responsibility for that once we got into you know, took up our personal hat and put our professional hat on. Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of what people can do is help help us spread the word. You know, sign the pledge. As I say, that's not enough. We we want you to act. We don't just want you to sign a pledge and forget about it. But it does help us to be able to go out and say we've had a thousand signatories. And uh, you mentioned as well the Green Litigation Pledge, which is modelled on the Green Pledge, the Green Mediations Pledge. I mean, this is all this is fantastic, and we have a liaison. Uh, committee working with those other initiatives I think it's really important that we work together um, to to raise awareness and to raise understanding Um, so that is a very important way um, that people can help the other way people can help and this is more I would guess tends to be more the younger generation in law firms and it and it's quite hard to do this I recognize it but I I do increasingly hear of junior associates just questioning traditional behaviours within the law firm, putting their hands up in meetings and saying, you know, why? Uh, Let's look around, look at all the disposal of the single use plastic that's here in this room. You know, why um, is a particular partner asking me to print out, you know, produce 10, 10 binders of documents when I know that they're probably only going to look at two or three of them. I don't like putting the onus on the junior associates to do that. I think it is hard. It requires a level of confidence. But I will say that what I'm seeing is that that generation are far more aware um, of the issues than perhaps the older generation are. That was a question I was going to say, was going to ask, which is obviously this, it's maybe it's been smooth in the initial uptick of of garnering support, but there must be in your deliberations with with other tribunal members or at conferences, there must be some sort of friction that you get from time to time. And I, you know, what you just said about junior associates 
confronting senior mm-hmm. uh, partners about about printing. And I I agree with you. And I think some people can do that, and some firm cultures allow for that to happen. And it also the onus is actually on the senior partners to be receptive to such critique. But how do you how have you been able to kind of overcome these typical naysayers that ha- that you've come across? And and that's a great question, Brian. And I mentioned before about you know, arbitrators not getting um, training on on soft skills. And I actually <laughs> think in my practice as an arbitrator, soft skills are vitally important, and they 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 come up for me quite a bit when if I, I frequently do get opposition, say when I send out or draft procedural order number one to my co arbitrators, and it and it says that the default is electronic and and we we don't want hard copy bundles and i do get pushback on that from 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 my co arbitrators and the short point is that i think lawyers we tend to be a bit all or nothing and so when an arbitrator reads that they think they can you know that's it lucy only wants me never wants me to print a page and and that's that's the end of the matter and that's that i i respectfully tell them that's not the case my my standard wording is no no hard copy bundles and sorry no hard copies unless the tribunal requests them and so what i do in the situation that i frequently have which is an arbitrator saying to me i absolutely want all all the bundles sent to me all the time and hard copy transcripts to say would you be okay and bear in mind this is early on in the case which is very important to get these things established early so this is early on in the case and i say to the arbitrator are you okay if you just we, we go with this at the moment you just we make sure that you can just request them when you need them. Oh, yes, absolutely. That'll be fine. I'll just ask for them when I need them. No problem at all. And inevitably, the question never comes. And, and, right. and it's so, so again, it, it's, it's about, again, it's the nudge theory uh, that uh, Leonor mentioned. It, it's not about imposing things on people. Um, it, it's about push, sort of pushing them in the right direction. Yeah. And, and, you, and you hopefully also achieve... Um, a, a longer standing or longer lasting progress as a consequence of that because they don't feel like they've been made to do this but rather maybe the next time around they're just like well I didn't need the printed copies in my last arbitration so chances are I don't need them this this one either. That's right and sort of reinforcing those those small behavioral shifts and and you know there will be people listening saying thinking to themselves that it's not going to make a difference that whether I print some bundles or anything um, in my arbitration, given the scale of the climate crisis that we are facing. And I completely agree with that. This is not about a few bundles printed out. But what it is about is having a grown up, intelligent conversation about these issues. Uh, We are not going to solve the climate crisis by um, is by behavioral change, but that doesn't mean we don't have to change. So I've had this in my like what to talk about on the podcast document. I think since 2018, the topic of council withdrawal in international arbitration. We haven't really gotten around to it until now, because now there are a lot of very public examples of arbitration lawyers withdrawing from representing their clients. So I think the timing is pretty good. And I want to preface this whole 
improvised discussion by saying that we are talking about council withdrawing in international arbitration, which means it is international and it means it's not in litigation. Mm. Because I think, and I don't want to preempt anything you guys are about to say in your capacities as counsel, but obviously it's part of our ethos as lawyers that everyone is entitled to representation. A surgeon is going to operate on a murderer and a lawyer is going to represent the murderer. It's just part of the professional ethics that we do that. However, neither of us is representing any murderers in a criminal trial. That argument works better in that context than in a corporate dispute in a forum that has been elected by the parties. There's no inherent right as a corporate entity to be represented in a commercial dispute the same way it is to be represented as an individual in a criminal case. I just want to get that off of my chest because I feel like there's some high-minded lawyers in this debate suggesting that, you know, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That said, there are such considerations as well, of course, depending on the case. And I guess we're both talking now about the actual Russian Federation Mm -hmm. initiating the war and then as a consequence, losing all of its lawyers in many other disputes. But I think we're also talking about other entities that may or may may or may not be sanctioned which is one thing because then we're talking about sort of a legal obligation may also be entities that aren't necessarily sanctioned but for various pr related reasons are not the best clients now and Mm -hmm. have seen lawyers leave them i guess these are all different things that we should keep in mind that the rules are a little bit different but let's start with that what are the rules here because i'm not really sure i i assume we're talking about the national bar rules typically like under which circumstances you can withdraw from representing a client that is not something we have any rules on in arbitration right it's your national bar no it would be your national bar rules because you're um you're subject to your bar ethical standards as a lawyer so the one that applies to you as as a lawyer and that actually has been raised um, in this specific instance that you are mentioning, Joel, right, in the, the Russian cases uh, following the war, um, you had a series of lawyers that have withdrew uh, from representing Russia in ongoing cases, but it raises issues as to their bar obligations under certain specific jurisdictions. And I know that publicly, I um, you know, some firms at least have said that this is an issue for them, um, mm-hmm. you know, to withdraw, withdraw uh, uh, and they have to check <laughs> their, their, bar, uh, their bar ethical standards obligation, which makes sense, right? I mean, you can't just, uh, um, just leave a client in the middle of a, of, a, of a proceeding, right? It doesn't sound right. Depends on the client and on the proceeding, I guess, because it's also... <laughs> You know, you, yeah, I don't want to be too sensitive. This is obviously because we're partly talking about the Russian Federation and international disputes that go to mm-hmm. geopolitics and interest of sovereignty and, and sensitive matters. I think you could make a case in the abstract that you no longer want to represent. Like, uh, was it Alain Pellet, the French yeah. professor, made that case because he did represent Russia yeah. during the, the uh, Crimea face of the mm-hmm. invasion of Ukraine and he put a distinction mm-hmm. which we don't have to get into I'm not necessarily convinced about the distinction but he said this is different 
I can no longer represent a party that is ignoring the very law that I am trying to uphold as a lawyer, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But But whether or not that flies with your national bar, that's a different... But then there's related um, litigation proceedings, right? I mean, what about all the cases um, on enforcement in the Yucas case, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, there you're in front of jurisdiction, so you would definitely there at least be subject to your... um, I mean, there's there's no question. You're subject to your um, to your ethical standards obligations in those cases. But do the ethical standards talk about the types of clients you're allowed to represent, or is in the U.S. ethical rules, it's about what happens when you withdraw. You have you can you know you have an opportunity to withdraw at any moment, and it probably goes with what you're saying, Joel, about the constitutional right to counsel. But uh, when you do withdraw, there you have to you know ensure that there is a trend position to the new yeah, exactly. council and mm-hmm. you have to ensure yeah, that they get all the documents. You can't leave the client just high and dry in the middle of, right, the, of a proceeding. Yeah. Even in French, I know in French rules, like even if you're not, like if you, I think it's the same in other jurisdictions. If you're not paid, that is not a sufficient even a reason to stop representing your client. Right. This came up, I read this on GAR. I only remember this because there, I had a tab open for like three days with the headline was uh, even pariahs have rights. I don't know if you saw this, but it was a BVI court, a judge, the British Virgin Islands, rejected a law firm's attempt to get off a case representing a Russian bank that was sanctioned. And I think one of the arguments they brought was that they are no longer certain that they will get paid because of the sanctions. Mm-hmm. And I think I am completely paraphrasing this, but I, I read this briefly. And I think the judge said something on this argument mm-hmm. to the effect that we'll deal with that when we get there. Like they've already paid into an account for the time being, you have access to funds. Mm-hmm. If you de facto end up having problems and they can't go around the SWIFT um, sanction problems that Russian banks can no longer use SWIFT, like further in line, if de facto you're not being paid, we can revisit that. But for the time being, you have to stay. Like you may not agree with it, it may, may not look good for you, but they're, they're a client and we have a pending case that you are obligated to see through. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's also. A, in my mind, that's a separate question because that is a jurisdiction where you you go to the judge to get mm-hmm. off the case, mm-hmm. and whether or not like, your client relationship is separate, of course. And I don't know if you regulate this with your client, like in, in your in your letter of engagement, inst- instruct engagement. Yeah, is, do you stipulate grounds on which you can cease? Because that's obviously separate from ethical standards. Can yeah. you have like a force majeure <laughs> clause yeah. in that contract? I mean, yeah, it's a contract like any other, right? So there, there is, mm-hmm. there are clauses that regulate termination and fees and all of that. And if there is a dispute under that letter of engagement, which court will be applicable and so on and so forth. It's a regular contract mm-hmm. in that in that respect. I mean, at least you know. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for Brian's, right? My these our letter of engagement are like that. Yeah, and so, we make it expressly clear these are the payment terms, and if there is no, and if there's no payment made by those payment terms, we have the right to terminate and the right to withdraw. So you do make it express whether it, mm-hmm. if it's not in there, whether it's still possible. I think that's up to. It depends on which jurisdiction you're mm-hmm. under, of course. Right. Yeah. 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 Have you? I, I started thinking about this before the war because it it happens obviously mm-hmm. in, in the normal run of the business as well. Have you had cases like this when you've had to come on as counsel to replace counsel that that did withdraw 
before or have you withdrawn yourself and then been in a position where you had to sort of make sure that someone else takes it over? Has this happened in your practice? Because I've seen that a few times. That's why I started to think about it. I've had, we've withdrawn for lack of payment, um, not at camp, but previously. Uh, and I wasn't at the seniority level to determine what happened after that. So I can't tell you what was the negotiation and what happened after that, but there was a new council on and we transferred the file immediately. And that was the end of that. Um, on the other end, we've been the also council brought on after term after a council has withdrawn two interesting things came up with that was, um, not only is it coordination with council, but Sometimes council, and specifically if we reference what's happening with Russia, a lot of council is only withdrawing because it's a firm decision and they have to follow the party line. And so they've just given it up based on, okay, the firm decides they're not going to do this anymore. We now need to withdraw. And there was, can it be temporary, which I kind of want to ask you guys is basically what they, what something that came across our desk was it appeared and it wasn't directly communicated, but it appeared that it would basically be temporary withdrawal during the time that this war was going on. And if there was a, some sort of peace agreement or settlement agreement that there would, or even a ceasefire, um, that there would be a potential that the client could come back mm -hmm. um, to the original firm. And obviously, I mean, we didn't even discuss it we said no immediately, so I can't tell you what happened there. But I thought it was a bit interesting that these withdrawals can't, are you know, when they're not completely motivated by something that's required by the rules or your ethical obligations. Yeah, what what that looks like. It can be conditional. Yeah, and and are we saying, you know, if we talk about, you know, the the guy who's who's withdrawn in this in this specific case representing Russia, but not in the instance with Crimea. Are you now making some sort of like arbitrary subjective determination on what you think is violative of international law versus and what what do you need is, does there need to be a, a pronouncement of a violation of international law for you to have yeah. an ethical obligation to withdraw yeah i mean that's the th that's the that's the million dollar question right <laughs> yeah. it's like it it seems Right now, everyone seems to be in agreement in the our international arbitration front, at least, that, oh, yes, we should withdraw from representing Russia. But um, where do you draw the line in mm -hmm. other, you know, yes, there's a war right now going on. Um, and this is, a, you know, I, I don't even yeah. know if I can say that. Is that like a particular situation, a violation of international law? Has it not occurred before? Uh, have we not represented states? Or are we not representing states that are allegedly violating international law? Uh, as just why they're in disputes know? in the first place? It, yeah, egregious <laughs> manner. So you know, um, you know, if you're involved in expropriation cases and their human rights um, violation at the same time that are alleged, like what, what, what? How do you do this? You know, mm -hmm. how do you reg regulate this? Um, so I, I, you know, I of course. Um, it doesn't matter what we think, <laughs> what our opinion is. I think the important thing that comes out of this is maybe we need more regulation around this um, instead yeah. of of just having, you know, saying, oh, of course, this is right. Oh, this is wrong. No, there's no right. Like I wrong ethically. You need rules. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's why we're lawyers and we need to follow um, our rules, whether they're the bar rules or whether they're the institutional rules or um, 
you know. Uh, yeah, but that's hard though. That's that's not that's not nothing. Like which rules? The bar rules, the institutional rules. Is this something we should? Because it's it's it hooks on to a bigger question, which is the mm-hmm. the, the nature of international arbitration. We have this mm-hmm. in so many other iterations as well. You know where you I don't know privilege, for example. Yeah, I, I would. You pro- yeah. I mean, to your duty to your client, I, I would, and arguably, I understand corrected, you are subject to your uh, jurisdiction or your bar rules. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with your client, whether it's arbitration or not, is governed by this client, you know, um, a, a relationship under your bar uh, rules. You, you know, whether you're an American lawyer or a French lawyer or whatever it is, I, that's, that's my that's my I think hand. so too. And I saw that, I mean, one of the more public and early withdrawals was uh, in, in the Dutch court, where the biggest arbitral award ever, the mm-hmm. Yukos Award, is still being challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I may be wrong, but based on what I did read, that Russia is without lawyers defending this $50, 60000000000 billion award. And the, the comments as part of the coverage of this was basically, well, now it's, it's essentially up to the Dutch Bar Association. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an interesting twist. Now I don't know if Russia's going to pursue this, if Russia's going to try to get other lawyers, or what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, the Dutch Bar Association is like the arbiter about whether or not the Russian government has the right mm-hmm. to defend itself. I'm talking about the biggest arbitral award in history, mm-hmm. it's a little unexpected. Mm-hmm. So, Joe, from what I'm gleaning from your presentation, is that you don't necessarily think it is crucial for us to regulate this in international arbitration i am it's just i haven't thought about this but my my instinct is always against regulation i think that may have Sweet. come against regulation yeah well i mean it's it, i don't want to sound like i'm 82 years old and like a swiss uh, great old man but it's, it's arbitration that doesn't sound that doesn't it's sound not at all actually because you would say you know i, I mean at least in the country of your country of origin, I would say it's pretty, it's pretty surprising to me that you have this confusion. Yeah. So I'm not talking about like redistribution of wealth in a political context. I'm talking specifically about international arbitration and whether or not we should sort of judicialize arbitration. Mm-hmm. That, that's it. But that's my instinct that we should be mm-hmm. careful, like creating uh, new, new bodies with new rules uh, if we can avoid it. And I do think we can trust the individual lawyers involved, and if needed, the individual local national bar associations involved mm-hmm. without need for some sort of multilateral instrument to deal with this. Mm-hmm. That is that is my my gut feeling. But it, it, it's kind of stopped being an academic question and turned into a very real life, everyday question now because all we, we see and hear about people uh, leaving their clients uh, in the middle of proceedings on a daily basis now, basically. And I'm not really sure where to draw the line, frankly. Well, because there are no rules. That's why you don't know where to draw the line, Jewel. <laughs> there are rules. The there's, just, there's a lot of them and they're sort of decentralized. That's the problem, I think. I think I could appreciate some sort of soft law document that tells you what is best practice in withdrawal, I think would be helpful perhaps to make it more universal yeah. on what you would expect taking on taking over a case where the council has withdrawn or something like that, where you know a council has to in, undertake reasonable but best efforts to 
not prejudice the client in the proceedings and to transfer all files to the new counsel within a reasonable time. You know, these types of just soft law indications that that counsel can refer to potentially. I don't know. Hmm. I wouldn't be against that. Well, soft law is easy. <laughs> soft law is okay. <laughs> easy to stomach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Should we... Have a happy fun time and rant. Let's yeah. let's leave people ponder on this and create a, a work like committee or something and draft. There we go. Exactly. I will say though, final thing from my perspective as tribunal secretary, it is kind of interesting when a law firm withdraws midway through a proceeding and another joins, and then you you have to read and compare the submissions and how the style changes and how a case develops mm -hmm. when you have the end result, you know, towards the end of the case, when you're drafting the award, typically, mm -hmm. it really is very interesting to see which, you know, how, how decisions are made about strategy and also how the way submissions are structured. And you get a very good, clear comparative lens to look at how different lawyers approach the same case, basically. But that's, that's just from my own amusement. No, I've, I've seen that as well, even taking over a case and you see what they've pled before and you're just like, Oh God, are we, Are you, you know, you, are you bound by your statement of claim submissions? What, yeah, what happens typically, you, right? And then what yeah. happens if you take over and you want to kind of like turn, make a left turn? Right. Uh, how do you really adjust? Yeah, especially that? when lawyers, not in cases of withdrawal, but in cases where the client fires the mm. earlier counsel because they messed up. How do you clean up? Maybe that's a that's a topic for another yeah another session. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Moving on, guys. Thanks, Joel. Happy Fun Time has come, and it's a not-so-happy fun time about talking about paying to play in international arbitration. And I remember when I was a junior lawyer, I would see all of these lawyers' profiles with accolades and emblems on their profiles about how many awards they won and where they're published and where they're ranked. And I was like, oh gosh, one day I will be able to do that. And I remember... <laughs> I, a mentor of mine, I was talking to them about this and I was like, you know, it's, it's exciting and daunting to get into this type of ranking situation. And this person that my mentor told me, uh, just be, always have a, uh, an eye of scrutiny when you see someone's awards, because you don't know whether they paid for it or whether it was actually given to them. And that has always led me into this thought <laughs> of critique of rankings and awards but that has also permeated into article contributions, publications, advertisements in publications and conferences. And that's what we're going to talk about quickly today. Um, we all know that there's certain rankings such as who's who and chambers and legal 500, where we're able to firms and individuals are able to, uh, you know, apply and also be nominated for these rankings. And a lot of them are, Free. So, you know, you take who's who, it is free to be published in their rankings. Now, some rankings, and I'm not going to identify anyone in particular, require a bit of payment if you want a bit of special treatment. So if you just want to be a name, that's fine. That's free. If you want a face, that's going to cost you. If you want a profile, that's going to cost you. Wait, sorry, I just need to correct. That's the that's exactly the case for who's who. <laughs> <laughs> Not identifying. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, because you just started. So I just want to say, just to clarify, of course, everybody can be in who's who. But if you want special treatment and you want to have like this banner with your face or whatever, you have to pay. 
just, have, just this, clarify. This, by the way, this is the logic behind almost every dating app too, by the way. Like you <laughs> oh, can get really? the default thing for free, but then if you want to oh, have premium. like added, yeah, premium, like build out your yeah. profile more, get boosted in the way, in the way people are swiping, then you have to like pay and there are different steps depending on how big of a profile you want and how much you want to be promoted by the AI, et cetera. It's the same basic approach as the... Like, <laughs> Or if, you, or if you want to join Raya and be part of the celebrity dating app, you have to really pay. <laughs> um, and so that, but there are loads of awards. There's loads of rankings besides the, you know, the, the three that everyone knows about. There's loads of awards that people get. Um, your top 50 under 50, top 40 under 40, your, you know, all of these things. And I think that there are a lot of them that it is specific, even to get onto the rankings, it is pay to play. Um, so, you know, that is a credit to who's who that you don't have to do it just to get on the rankings, but mm-hmm. you, there are some that are, and I think for junior lawyers and people that haven't been nominated or haven't reached the rankings, I think you should really kind of understand that some of these rankings that pop up are not, and clients love it and clients ask for it. Uh, so there's some sort of like responsibility or pressure on firms to be able to, to, to pay to play. Cause it's not only for, um, individual prestige or industry prestige. It's also clients that actually um, ask yeah. for this in pitches. Um, something that came up, and I'm just going to, because rankings is quite obvious, but article contributions, and I think there's um, this undercurrent of we should have a f- academic, uh, fostering academic activity in our field. It's academia is what pushes the theoretical perspectives. In <laughs> um, in arbitration, it's what sparks, you know, new ideas and and new concepts to be brought forward. And a lot of these publications are not free, um, not only to buy it, to actually contribute to it. So you're, I've been, we've been promoted or um, uh, approached by uh, several of these art- article and book writings and you, and they come out with, you can join the likes of Wilmer mm. Hale and Herbert Smith, do you want to be a part of it? And you're like, sure. And they're like, six grand. And you're like, what? <laughs> uh, and so I don't know if you guys have like any experience receiving these types of emails or. Yes, yes, yes. I, as we speak, I have two different conferences, which is yet another layer to this, mm-hmm. approaching me to speak. I have not responded and I looked up like the terms I know I would have to pay in order to speak. And then like different people from both organizers have reached out independently, obviously not checking. And it's not in my field, really. It's not like it's, you know, someone has read my book. It's mm-hmm. more international business and disputes and finance, a big conference. Please come speak. We appreciate your expertise. And I, I'm considering some sort of, because it's happened many times, I'm considering some boilerplate response, just like out of principle, thank you, but I don't pay for this. If anything, mm-hmm. you should pay me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, yeah go I, ahead, Sonia. No, 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 sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, there's um, firms policy that, um, you know, at least uh, us, we, it's for the longest time, you know, we're not, we don't pay for article writing. We don't pay for mm-hmm. participation in, in conferences, maybe exceptionally in some of them, you know, you know, here's the thing is like, it's loose. So it depends which one that, it is. I mean, yeah. That is a good policy. It is also a common policy. It is mm-hmm. every university's policy, mm-hmm. which means no names mentioned again, but it means as a general 
statement of things that the quality of these kind of publications couldn't be very high because mm-hmm. most serious potential contributors wouldn't contribute under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what the end product will look like mm-hmm. anyway, if a vast majority of law firms and academics wouldn't ever contribute. It, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It just feels like the, the best things are the ones that we know you don't have to pay to contribute to. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've no, and, and we've all contributed at some, some stage and I've, like planned a conference before and it's very expensive. And I understand you want to get as much money as possible in order to put on a really high-end conference because usually these are, you know, nonprofits or public bodies mm. that are putting on these conferences and need need the money. So they'll get it wherever they can. But I, I agree with Joel. I think that policy of not paying to speak, especially, is is a really good policy. There's also just to to play devil's advocate with you, Brian. I agree, but but even if, if I take that on its face, what you're saying that it's expensive to run conferences. So maybe you need the money to even put the conference on in the first place, but then who gets the opportunity to speak? Who are you giving a platform? It's only people who can pay for it. Mm-hmm. There's an accessibility aspect as well. If you want to join the likes of law firm X and Y, you need to pay the same as law firm X and Y, I think which it's of just- course excludes like 90% of potential people. I think it's just, you have to accept that it's not, you know, comparable to a publication like academic would publish. And it's, it's not, it, it's a marketing tool, really, right. that's what it is. So yeah. when you're paying, and if you're in firms are ready to pay is because it gives them something in return. And what is it? It's not just ego boosting, to mm. be able to be part of a panel or whatever. It's, it's really because it gives you access and, um, mm. you know, just, just it's hard to tell profile. though. It's hard to separate, separate the one from the other. Like I, I am a in the academic world, and I, I, I'm supposed to know this, I've seen some of the ones where my employer has been approached about uh, having someone contribute and, and we find out you have to pay for it. The end result looks very much like any other edited book with a good publisher or a serious journal. It's kind of hard. You have to be very mm. sophisticated to tell them apart sometimes. Sometimes it's obvious that, yeah, I mean, you're right, Sadia, that it is marketing, but sometimes it does look like marketing as well. Sometimes it doesn't. And then it's it's tricky. Yeah. I don't know. I just, you just look at, I don't want to give any names. Of course, I don't want, but there's some articles of like three, four pages. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you compare that? Yeah. Even if it's and they're in like, a book. And that 30, and 40 edited. articles by, yeah, by exactly. senior people at law firms. And it, and it looks lovely. It's this an amazing book and it's edited by like, you know, hoopla or God or whatever, but it's, <laughs> You know, how can you compare? I mean, I'm talking here to an academic and being married to an academic myself. I just am constantly, he's like, this is not an article. This is not a serious contribution. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's not. <laughs> you know, same for conferences speaking. And acad- I mean, and you know this, Joel, you know, it's like, you know, the academic conferences you could speak in and there's like publications that follow and it's very um detailed you often actually have to publish beforehand to be selected to speak. yeah yeah, yeah. And, and to do um, it well you have to really yeah. do the and, time and, and the work our, and and mea culpa you know all the conferences we do in arbitration of course is, is what you speak 10 minutes 10 mm-hmm. minutes you know i mean i don't know i'm not saying it's not good and we shouldn't do it i'm just saying it's not a different the purpose yeah. is not the same right 100 it's a yeah. different thing yeah so I can also understand, you know, all these conferences people to be devil's advocate saying, hey, we're actually spending so much time and effort giving you a, you know, visibility and a platform and yada, yada, yada. So, of course. That's true. Yeah. 
I think maybe to tie it back to my first comment and to, to end this segment, I would say that the a mentor to a mentee who's really interested in getting these, you know, publications and, and awards and rankings is that it's, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Like if you're, you know, you can, you can get to a good publication, you can get to a good, you know, book, um, you can get to a good conference. You don't have to pay, maybe they'll pay you, but that's Mm. in due time. And there's no fast track way to, to getting recognized by your peers for your, on the merit Mm. and not necessarily for what you've paid. Yeah, and there's so many, so many really free outlets where you can publish quality pieces, um, uh, regardless of your level of of um, seniority. You know, even thinking about Clure Arbitration Blog, isn't that yeah. great? Honestly, you know, anyone yeah. can submit any a, any entry. And big shout out to Krina, who's amazing uh, editor at uh, Clure Arbitration Blog. But there's so many other places. Just Ojimit that you're also doing. Of course, Ojimit. How can I forget about Ojimit? Everyone, well, Young Ojimit is free. Uh, yeah, Ojimit, you ha- you have to pay for. The That's true, but, but Young Ojimit is not. You, That's a great. Ojimid, it's like a pipeline yeah, right into exactly. your community where you can write thoughtful exactly. like emails that are substantive and meaningful without having to go through everything. Of course, Young Ojimit, and there's so many other um, platforms as well that you can just contribute um, directly. So. Um, and better and re- distribution, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and regardless of jurisdictions too, like Sika, like the Pakistan uh, Arbitration Center has its blog as well. So if you just look around, there's multiple ways that you can contribute for free. That, that's a great way to end this. I like that. <laughs> you don't have to pay to play. You don't have to pay to play. You need to work hard and everything will come to you. At some there point. we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, Sadia, enjoy the conference. I look forward to an update. Will do. Thank you. We'll miss you. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Dimitri. If I can end on a, yes. a slightly less cheerful tone again, Dimitri, our researcher, is Russian. And I want to just, in the interest of humanity, mention on the podcast that we all have Russian friends. I take for granted that we have all already communicated with our friends in Ukraine or our Ukrainian friends who many have now left Ukraine, unfortunately, and that we are mentally with them all the time mm. and stand with them. But also don't forget about the many, many, many Russians, many of whom are arbitration lawyers uh, who are in Russia and don't agree with this war and are being punished in many different ways. We also owe them a duty to try to help out. Many of them are trying to get out of Russia and get a job elsewhere. Uh, keep that in mind, people, please. Absolutely, here and here. Well said. All right. We'll speak in two weeks. Bye.